0: john i i put the the title of the sermon out there and then after i did it it just sounded so harsh love or perish it sounded uh it, it sounded judgmental or something but uh i i took that from some readings jesus said of course john chapter 3 verse 16 uh, you need not perish right remember that john three 16. we'll quote that at the end of the service a poet suggested we must love each other or perish from a tragic childhood one author lamented the great tragedy of life is not that men perish but that they cease to love in a book entitled love or perish a psychiatrist wrote love is the essential ingredient that binds us together without love the collapse of life begins no person can hope to survive in a life guided by hatred we must love or perish John, the beloved apostle, returns now to this theme. We're in John, 1 John, we're in chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up with verse 11, the transition from last week to this, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, he's told you this before, you know it to be true, that we should do what? Love one another. Now in chapter 2, if you can remember that far back, in 1 John chapter 2, Love was a matter of fellowship. If we love one another, right, we walk in light and we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember that? So it's a matter of fellowship. Here in chapter 3, love is a matter of relationship, knowing that we have been born of God. Warren Wiersbe said that in chapter 2, love is a contrast of light and dark, here in chapter 3 it's a little more dramatic. It is a contrast of life and death. You see it there in verse 14, "We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren." So the opposite is equally true. Abide means to remain. We used that or he used that term last week we talked about it a little bit. It is to suggest then that if you do not love, if you have no compassion in your heart. If, you, if nothing moves you, if you're just sort of dead, you may in fact still be dead in your trespasses and sin. You may not be a child of God. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that. John has said that. That's the suggestion that's made here. It's one thing to say that if you don't love, then you're living a lie. That's chapter 2. You're walking in darkness. You're a liar, and you're not doing the truth. But it's quite another when you come to chapter three, and now he says that if you don't love, what are you? Verse fifteen: What are you? If you don't love, what are you? A murderer. Now that's quite a that's quite a jump. Now, I mean, most of us understand if you don't love somebody, you say you love them, but you you know you don't. Your actions don't. You're a liar. Now he's saying, if you say you're a, you, you love, and yet you hate, you love God, but you hate your brother. Now he says you're not just a liar, you're a murderer. Well, that's, that's a little strong, wouldn't you say? Well, each time John returns to his theme for love, he comes to it at a little different perspective. This time, it is relationship based upon Righteousness, which was introduced to us last week. Remember, as a child of God, verse 10. In this, the children of God are manifest, made known, and the children of the devil. So you know the difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. You know that. It's made known. It's it's evident to you. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. So now that transition... To the balance of the chapter. John begins his discussion with love and the negative. You know, sometimes it's easier to sort of introduce something with the negative. I, you know what I mean? You're you trying to explain what is something, and love is so many-faceted. Wouldn't you agree? This young, loving couple down here, newly engaged. I, I mentioned to my daughter that you asked her to marry you. She said, you mean they're not married? Well, no wonder they're always sitting so close together. <laughs> that was great. That was great. Where was I? Yes, in the negative. So you try to describe what is love, and it's many, you know, it's, it's got lots of sides to it, right? Many faceted. It's got lots of different sides to it. But we can understand what it's not. That's pretty quick. And so he jumps right to that. He said, let me tell you what it's not. And to use the term competitive. Sometimes I would use the term comparative righteousness. Well, at least I'm not as bad as. And we would all conclude, well, at least I never killed anybody. And that's exactly where he goes when we read verse 11. For in this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Well, what does that look like? Not like Cain. Not like Cain who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore, did he slew, did he slay? Why did, why did he kill his brother? What was the big offense? Because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So don't be surprised, my brethren, verse 13, if the world hates you. Your works are righteous. Theirs are evil. We know that we have passed from death unto life, verse 14. Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother is still abiding in death. Whosoever hateth his brother, he even goes one step further. You're not just dead. You're now a murderer and you know. I mean, it's common sense. Nobody who enjoys hating another person, killing another person, abideth in him or has eternal life. Hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's goods, you've got the ability, you see a need. Now, I'm not talking about every need that, you know, I drive into Philly every day. I'm not talking about everybody that stands on the street corner with a sign like Friday afternoon banging on my window. Uh, I'm not talking, I, I still think the best way to give is through the local church. That way you just know where it's going. You you have some, you know, some knowledge of what's going on with it. Um, See, I'm not talking about helping every, but if you have, like if you were at the dinner, if you were at the dinner on Thursday night and you had no compassion within you, you had nothing in you stirred up and you see your brother and you shut up your bowels of compassion, how can you say, the end of verse 17, how can you say, God's love is in you. Competitive love or comparative righteousness. At least I never killed anybody, right? Whenever we fail to love, we end up in competition with other people. It begins with something like resentment or jealousy because of what they have or what they've done. And so we begin to think of ourselves, you know, in terms of I deserve better. And it always ends up with the self-satisfied feeling, well, at least I've done my part. And somehow we feel like we've justified ourselves before God, as if we fulfilled our obligation. But at every stage, the competitive love denies that we were ever as bad as them. We never did that. Well, that's certainly not my problem. I was never as needy as that guy. And, of course, again, well, at least I'm not Cain, right? I didn't kill my brother. But the action that is suggested here is, in fact, murderous. You see it there, verse 11, verse 12. Cain, Abel, you know the whole story, right? It takes us all the way back to the beginning of time when the competitive nature of two brothers literally ended in murder. This action is the level on which the devil, the wicked one, verse 12, that's the level on which he operates. Without love, we end up where the human race started out in the beginning. Where was that? Where Cain killed Abel. Cain, the farmer, lived his life in competition with Abel, the shepherd. Cain, however, did not begin his day of worship when they're supposed to bring their sacrifice. He didn't get up in the morning saying, Now, I'm going to kill my brother. I'm going to take my sacrifice down there, and I'm just going to, I'm going to get him when he's not looking or when he's bowing in prayer, and I'm going to slay my brother. It didn't start out his day that way. And you don't start out your day that way either, do you? But somehow we... We end up here. I I don't know how it happens always. But it's not the story of Cain, the atheist, who never goes to church, killing Abel, the believer. This is the story of Cain, who loved self, and Abel, who loved God. Without proper love, our actions will always betray us. Hopefully not always with murder but always pat- patterned after the devil. Who, by the way, is not only seeking to devour, to kill, he's also the father of lies. Do you remember, you remember what was the very next thing that happened after Cain killed his brother? What was the next thing? God comes to him, he says, he says Hey, where's your brother? Am I supposed to know? Right? Am I my brother's keeper? So not only is the devil seeking to devour whom he may, he's also the father of lies, right? So this first contrast is telling us that those who belong to God's family will practice love and truth as opposed to hatred and lies. In love and faith, we seek to please God. Without it, we don't stand a chance. We do perish. Cain's competitive nature represents the world's kind of love. It will always defend itself with that phrase, well, at least I never killed anyone. But what is the attitude? The attitude is simply hatred. You see it, verse 13, right? Not as Cain, who, the wicked one slew his brother, his own works were evil, or will not then if the world hates you. So it's just one of hatred, and it should be no surprise to any of us who love God. Marvel not, verse 13, my brethren, if the world hates you, just like Cain hated his brother. Titus 3 says, For we ourselves, we ourselves, we, you and me, were also sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. Titus 3 Three, So hatred in the world is no surprise. The surprise should be when someone who declares that they are a lover of God would then hate their brother and have no compassion on the needs of other people. That should be the surprise. to us. How can you say you love God and yet shut up your concerns to other people? Because after all, verse 15, if you hate your brother you're already a what? You're already a what? A murderer in your heart. So the hateful condition of the heart of Cain is the same for all those who do not love. The only reason hatred is not acted upon in most cases is simply because of social order and fear. We don't want to get locked up, right? So I'm not going to take action accent on my hatred. It's the same thing. It's the same reason a lion sleeps like a house cat when he's behind bars, Right? He's restrained, but my dear friends, I listen to this. Our competitive nature says, from behind bars of restraint, I would never kill anyone. But that's—we're not governed by the law of restraint. I don't do this. I don't do that. We're governed by the law of liberty, and we misunderstand liberty. We'll have to have a whole sermon on. Christian liberty someday. We, we talk about Christian liberty like I can do whatever I please. No. It's the fact that I am open, right, to so many opportunities, but I am I am only governed by what? My relationship to God. So I, I'm not governed, I'm not restrained by the law, I'm restrained by liberty. What would I do given the opportunity? And given the opportunity, and every one of you would say, He deserves your hatred, right? He does not deserve your kindness after what they did to you, right? Right, you know, and we'd all agree. We can see that. We'd probably experience it. We'd say, they don't deserve it. But given that, the law of liberty says, I don't have to hate you. I don't have to slay you in my mind. I can forgive. I can move on. Remember Paul First, he was called Saul, right? He hated the church. I don't know that he ever killed anyone. But he lists himself among thieves and murderers. He says, I am the chiefest of sinners. Why would he go there? Do you remember the story of who? Who? Stephen. Somebody say the name. Stephen, right? I don't know that he picked up a stone. He held his clothes. He stood by and watched him get killed. And Paul is saying that it is as bad as if I had killed him myself. You're there with me. So the fact that you've never murdered anyone doesn't give you a competitive edge when you stand before God. Before his conversion, Paul was known as Saul. The application to us is that without love, now listen to this, we are at very least willing to stand by and let others perish in their sin. Without love. What's the application? Let's take it a little further. Verse 16, 17. <clears throat> so here's how we understand it because who christ laid down his life for us so we ought to do what lay down our life for the brethren but whoso has this world's goods and just is not willing to help you're you're just going to stand by and let them perish You shut up your and How can you say, how can it be that God's love dwells in you? We know what Jesus did, right? So it's impossible to have his love in you and remain indifferent to the suffering of this world. Christian love cannot be proven by the negative. Remember, as if in comparison to Cain, to just conclude, this cannot be the conclusion of your love. Say, well, at least I haven't killed anyone. That can't be the conclusion. Christian love cannot be proven in the negative. Love must be proven in the presence of good. Isaiah said, cease to do evil, learn to do well. James said, true love will not only keep yourself unspotted from the world, but it will love the widows and the orphans, and it does good. Righteous indifference. Is not an option for the follower of Christ. See the first law of competitive or or uh, comparative righteousness or competitive love. The first law of competitive love is self-preservation, right? You look out for myself. What you did to me, what they said to you, right? Self-preservation. That's the first law of competitive love. The first law of Christ's love self sacrifice 1 John chapter 3 verse 16 correlates well with another 316 do you know the verse right John 316 1 John 316 correlates pretty well with John chapter 3 verse 16 for God so loved the world you see it here 1 John 3 verse 16 hereby perceive we the love of God for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son because he laid down his life for us, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Had God only ever declared his love from heaven, we may or may not have believed him. And by the way, what good would it have done if he had declared his love from heaven and then stood by and watched as we failed miserably and dropped into the pit of hell. What good would that do us? But here in his love, that he sent his son right, to prove his love and lay down his life. And not for the really great, kind, generous, perfect people, but in that while we were yet sinners, Christ laid down his life. He died for us. Sitting in church on a Sunday morning may or may not convince your neighbor that you're a believer. It may not.
1: You know when you convince your
0: neighbor that you're a believer? Right? When your leaves are blowing on their property. When they've got the flat tire and you're late for work. That's when you that's when they begin to understand there's something different about your life. That's that's when they begin to recognize. I think we all recognize that a person need not be a murderer to be guilty of sin. You don't even have to particularly hate someone in order to be guilty of sin. But did you realize that the most prevalent case of sin among believers is simply indifference to the needs of other people? Worse yet, indifference silences the gospel. As the saying goes, what you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. Or as you have perhaps heard it said before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It is imperative, therefore, that we do good unto all men, especially unto them who be of the household of faith, Galatians 6. By this will all men know that we are followers, disciples, disciples that we are Christians. You know what made our nation great and what keeps the church indispensable? Now, I know that there's talk today of, you know, it doesn't seem like the church is needed. What keeps the church indispensable to our social order is not our political effort to sort of silence and stamp out sin. That's not what makes us important to society. What makes us indispensable to our social order is the good that we do in spite of all the hate and the evil that we see all around us people don't need more guilt (laughs) they need grace paul said there's only one way to overcome evil and that is with good romans 12 like the young mother who was finding it very very difficult single young mother finding it very difficult to sort of keep her life in order and and keep her fellowship with the Lord in proper perspective and find time for a relationship with the Lord and devotion and other thoughts and prayer. And so that following week, as she shared that testimony and that struggle, that following week, two ladies from church showed up at her house to help her with housework. And that went on for several weeks until she just kind of got things in order, you know? And after she got that sort of pattern down, she got it back in order. That's what made the difference. So long as we remain indifferent, We cannot expect much to change. The only thing that will make a positive difference is compassionate love. And that goes on with verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 18. My little children, let us not love with words, as if to say, not just words, neither with tongue, nice sayings, good scriptures, um, those little phrases we throw out sometimes. I'll be praying for you. I'm glad you're praying, but I need a little something else, right? But in what? Deed and truth. Without compassion, everything we say, remember 1 Corinthians 13? Everything we say rings hollow. I'll be praying for you. Tinkling brass or a sounding cymbal, 1 Corinthians 13. The most attractive thing about Jesus was the sincerity with which he responded to the needs of people. Busy, 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 and yet he knew when someone touched the hem of his garment. Busy in a hurry, and yet he noticed the fellow in the tree. Right? The sincerity with which he noticed the needs of people. Someone may be looking at you right now and wonder if you're a Christian And on some occasion, you may even look at yourself in the mirror and wonder, am I really a child of God? You know the best way to convince yourself and to convince others that you are a follower of Jesus Christ is to love, and that in a tangible way. In some way, for someone, in some circumstance, you ought to be compelled by the love of God, my goodness, to do something you cannot stand by and watch as they die. You're as guilty as Paul of murder. I didn't say it, John. Well, what's the assurance? Let's talk about assurance. The assurance that comes with committed love. You see it in verse 19 again. And Hereby we know this, we perceive this, that we are of the truth and we assure our hearts. We get assurance ourselves. For if our heart condemn us, right, on the days we fail, on the days we just, we're just we not living up to the standard we know we should. So if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. So on the days we're doing good and we're helping and we're being, and we've got assurance. And on the days we fail miserably, God knows your heart. God knows your heart. And God is greater than our heart. And he knows all things. John's point is that God knows our heart. And so on those days you don't much feel like a Christian. Trust what God says about you. Don't trust your own Best feelings. This itself, by the way, is an illustration of God's love. He does not deal with us according to our failures, but according to his love. How do you deal with people? According to the way they've treated you or according to the love of God that is in you? It's easy to be loving to a loving person, right? I can love my wife. It's easy to love a loving person. But on days that you're at work, co-workers, the guy cuts you off at the, the, was it you that mentioned, you know, somebody cuts you off at a, Where was it I heard this morning? You know, maybe it was Sunday school. There it was. Guy cuts you off. It's hard at that moment to be a loving person. We don't love people according to their failures. We love according to our faith that is in us. And God loves us, not according to our failures, but according to his own kindness, his own love. Well, the easiest way for the devil to rob you of blessing is to remind you of just how unworthy you are and just how unworthy that person is that just cut you off. It ruins your whole day, doesn't it? I know you want to be right with God, but let's be honest. How can we be right with someone that we've never seen? Isn't that hard? We want to be right with God. How can we get right with somebody that we've never seen? Chapter 4, verse 20. We'll come to it again later. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. If a man says I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So flip it around. How do we love God? In loving God people we know that we love and by the way it makes god so much more tangible more real more understandable in loving this way you may be surprised to know that you'll never gain assurance of your salvation by reading your bible praying or going to church more You don't break out of that resentful attitude of holding back, loving others in some tangible way that you know you should. You'll always be left feeling like you serve an unseen God who doesn't really know my circumstance. He doesn't really get me as long as you're holding on to that because he's still unseen to you. He's unseen to your circumstance, out of sight, out of touch. When you love others, It makes God so much more real, not only to them, but to yourself. It gives assurance of your salvation. Another practical benefit to service and loving is answer to prayer. We all remember Psalm 66. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Well, let's read on to this about answer to prayer. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us... Then we, we, then we have confidence toward God, and whatsoever we ask, then I leave out the word not? If our heart condemn us not, we know we're in right relationship to other folks, then we have confidence toward God. And so then, whatever we ask, we don't have any, any hindrance. We'll receive him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. There's no telling what kind of sin might be hindering prayer. I get that. There's all kinds of things that are going on in a person's heart and we don't know anything about it. We've read the verse. Somebody mentioned the verse this morning in Sunday school. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked, who can know it? So there's all kinds of things, Psalm 66, that might put us in hindrance toward answered prayer. But so think about it for a minute. Everything we suggest to ourselves is all right. But if I'm holding on to something against another person, everything between me and God is all right, but this guy, then guess what? Everything between you and God is not all right. How can you say you're in fellowship with God and don't love your brother? That's some pretty practical stuff right there. So long as there's something within your ability and you refuse to obey, it is for you what? Sin. James chapter 4 tells us. You know how God would respond. You know what you should do, but pastor, you don't know what you did to me. For you it is sin. It's a hindrance now between you and God. Remember the young, obedient, wealthy man that came to Jesus? He came to Jesus expecting confirmation of his eternal life, right? Remember that guy? Jesus said, so he says, Master, what must I do to receive it? And he he just assumed God was going to say, oh, you're pretty good. Go on your way. And Jesus placed his finger on the one thing, the one thing. Wouldn't you know it? And God placing his finger on that one thing right now for you. Wouldn't you know it? And he went away sorrowful, wishing he had never asked in the first place. Because he had a lot of stuff. He just didn't want to give up any of it. That just seemed like asking way too much. Why did he bother? And there's likely someone who attends church on occasion, even reads their Bible as best they can but almost feel like it makes things worse I wish I'd never gone to church wish I hadn't read my Bible wish I'd have just stayed away because now I've got to deal with it now I've got to talk to God about this the only way you ever break through in prayer in prayer, regarding the things that matter most to you, is to first care for the things that matter most to God. Now let's be honest, is there something keeping God from answering your prayer? It may not be obvious. It may not be terrible sin. It hopefully isn't murder. The place to start is simply to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the place we got to start, right here, right now. And the key to it all is what I just call the abiding principle. You see it last couple of verses. That word abiding, we had it before. It's to remain in. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. These are the two great commandments, aren't they? Remember Jesus, when He... What were the two great commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? (laughs) Whoever has the need. There you go. That's your opportunity. That's your neighbor. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us, and it is confirmed by the Spirit which he has given us. By obedience, we abide in Christ. Remember, gain assurance. That Christ abides in us. It is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. John is referencing the two great commandments. By loving God, John clarifies here that it means to believe on the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You can't love God without accepting His Son. You cannot love God without accepting His Son, Jesus Christ. John also clarifies that the place to begin in obedience is in our love for one another because love fulfills the law. It is impossible to live in obedience to the commands of our Lord if you hold something against someone else. I often say I'm, I'm not holding a grudge, but I hope I live long enough to see the Lord pull a rug out from under me. You ever say something like that, Right? James said, is it impossible for you to say you love God and whom you've not seen? Remember that? I can't see God, and you say, I love God whom I can't see, and then you say you hate your brother who you can see and who, by the way, is made after the similitude or the, in similarity after the image of God. You can't do it. Jesus said to, uh, to the extent that you love him, you're going to obey him. Abiding in Christ is fully dependent upon you loving others as Christ loved you what restrictions were placed on it? None who did he go after? The loving person? The guy with a smile on his face? The person you can connect with? He seemed to come after the people that were hateful and resentful right? If you're finding it hard lately to love and obey God The place to start looking for answers is in your love for one another. I know you haven't murdered anyone, right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay, good. I know you haven't murdered anyone. And hatred, man, that seems like too strong a word to describe what you're feeling right now. But you've grown indifferent over the years to ever making things right. Your choice to abide, to dwell on, to live in that hatred and resentment, that, my friend, is the kiss of death on your spiritual life. You must love, or you will perish. Maybe not eternal death among the unsaved, but you're more like, the living dead, who simply don't care, because you've been burnt too many times before. Say it with me, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? We must love. Or we perish let's pray dear heavenly fathers we bow before you now perhaps there is some lingering resentment that's in our mind help us to move on past that we can't be friends with everyone but we don't have to hold hatred against anyone lord you have forgiven us and upon the basis that you have forgiven us may we forgive others also may there not be not only sin that's hindering our prayer but may there also not be any kind of ill will against a brother or sister that would in fact be the kiss of death on our spiritual life or on our church or give us hearts of compassion full of forgiveness because god you have forgiven us for christ's sake in whose name i pray and all god's people said Amen.